What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on, Danny, is we're talking about depopulation. So the New York Times recently had a very, very troubling piece titled Long Slide Looms for World Population with Sweeping Ramifications. And it pointed out that demographers believe that in the latter half of the century, possibly earlier, global population will enter a sustained decline for the first time. Here in the U.S., we've seen falling birth rates going back to the 2008 financial crisis. Before that, birth rates in the U.S. averaged 2.1 percent, which is replacement. But between 2007 and 2019, they fell to 1.7 percent, which is below replacement. And then came the COVID crisis, uh, where you would think everybody was locked in their homes with nothing to do, that they would be getting jiggy with it, right? <laughs> but they were like, That was, I'm sorry, everybody, this is a totally serious topic, but that was possibly one of the worst expressions. Wasn't that a song by Will Smith, something about oh getting gosh, jiggy? Yeah. And then, of course, Seinfeld turned it into just, anyway, look it up. Anyway, no one's getting jiggy with it because our birth rate fell in 2020. The fertility rate fell to 1.64%, which is 20% below replacement level. That has all sorts of implications beyond the millennial generation and the young people who are not getting jiggy with it. But it has implications for a country where we're talking about spending $6 trillion in new government spending. And guess what? Young people are not producing the taxpayers. The workers. Or, or the workers who are going to support the new socialism they want to uh, put in place. Socialism requires taxpayers and workers. And if you don't produce the workers or the taxpayers to pay for it, then when guess what? When you retire, ain't going to be nothing there for you. Yeah, no, I know. This is exactly true. And we've seen this happen in China. But I think it's important to put it in, in context. You'll never hear us quoting so much from a New York Times piece in the future. I swear to you guys who listen to us and, and trust us not to quote the New York Times. But, you <laughs> know, what... blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while, right? Well, right. And what, But what's remarkable is, you know, we're talking now about a global population decline that has the Times very worried. But reckon out that, you know, in 2000, the population of the world passed 6 billion. At the turn of the 20th century, so in 1900, the population of the world was 1.6 billion. So it truly was, even with World War I and World War II, which were catastrophic events, particularly World War I in terms of the fighters, World War II in terms of the Holocaust and the intervention of Stalin and his murder of 30 million people or the Great Leap Forward in China and the murder of tens of millions by the wonderful Chairman Mao, still the population grew exponentially. And what's super interesting is to look at a place like China. If you don't have kids, you end up having these societies that look like upside down pyramids, super top heavy with old people. And with this tiny point at the bottom of young people, really small cadre of young people who don't work, don't generate income, don't pay taxes, and society rests on their shoulders. That's a recipe for collapse. Well, you mentioned the Great Leap Forward. So last year, 
There were only 12 million babies born in China last year. Think about that in a country of over a billion people. 1.4 billion people. 1.4 billion people. That is the lowest official number since 1961 when the Great Leap Forward took place and they basically starved their population into into decline. And the data show that uh, their models that population decline in China is such that China will go from 1.41 billion population now declined to about 730 million in 2100 at the end of this century. That is a stunning statistic. Again, think about it this way. On the one side, you can say, well, you know, great. And this is a big lefty thing, right? You know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are only having two children because the impact on the environment of having more slap at Prince William, who had three, and (laughs) and the Queen, who had four, is the impact on the environment is too great. But of course... Well, you hear this all the time. Like, I I can't bring myself to have children because of climate change. Because one, I don't want to burden the world. And two, how can you bring a child into a world that's about to be consumed by droughts and fires and flames? I refer you back to our previous podcast recently with the Obama science advisor who says not necessarily a good reason not to have kids. Right. The only silver lining here is that maybe there'll be fewer Greta Thunbergs in the world. But but I think the problem is that while people may believe that fewer people will demand fewer resources. In fact, everybody has now been conditioned to expect more resources. Mm -hmm. Everybody has been conditioned. 50% of the American public is on some kind of government dole, whether it's health insurance, disability insurance, welfare, loans, all of that. Right. Medical insurance assistance, you name it, yeah. Right. Or they're living in their house and haven't been evicted because the CDC said you can't evict people. Our colleague Michael Strain recently tweeted, one third of people in America age 18 to 34 are living with their parents. (laughs) If that doesn't tell you. That's exactly right. People have been conditioned. They're not working. They're not producing. Yes, they're not having kids, but they are. Their demands are growing. And this is it's going to be a crisis. I think there are all sorts of implications for this that we really don't understand. It's not just there are going to be fewer resources. It is that when you have fewer children, your desire to commit to a forward-leaning foreign policy may be smaller. Nobody wants to see their children go off and die in the military. On the other hand, if that child is going to be your sole source of support in you know 20 years, then you're even more frightened about this. This actually is interesting for China, too, because, of course, they've now had, right, they've had about a half a century worth of only one child, and they've had no serious conflicts. So there are questions about whether they would want to as well. And then there's the other problem, which is the coming epidemic of loneliness. Oh, you know, I mean, if so you depressing. think about it, we've had an epidemic of loneliness in the pandemic and all sorts of mental health problems that have come from the pandemic. But you know what? If you have one child or if you don't have children, when you get old, you've got these baby boom generation which didn't have as many children. And there's stories about this in the papers about, you know, just how there are people living alone. No one calls them. It's a terrible way to grow old with no one to support you. I give you two perfect examples. One, you know, I see this in Italy where everybody's seen these great stories about, you know, for five euros, you can buy an apartment or a house in these villages that are dying because, you know, they're just full of old people and there's no one there. There's no kids. It's terrible. Maternity wards are closing in hospitals. But I'll tell you the the one that was for me the most creepy. I was actually with one of our colleagues, um, in fact, our guest today, Nick Eberstadt in China. 
this was some years back. Now, uh, I don't think Nick or I would dare go to China, but we were walking around, just wandering around Beijing, and we walked past this playground. There is nothing lonelier than a playground without children, except perhaps a playground full of young men illegal internal immigrants in China who aren't allowed to leave their rural town without a permit and come to the city but can't find work in their rural area and come illegally to Beijing. They then gather in these empty playgrounds, and it is at once just sad and really, really creepy. And the big difference between China and us is in China, it was as a result of a government policy, the one-child policy. Here, the one-child policy is self-imposed. It will have equally disastrous results over time, maybe slower here than it was in China because we don't have forced abortions and we don't have infanticide and all the things the government running around and enforcing it with the venom that only a totalitarian dictatorship can. But a one-child policy is a path to national doom, and that's what we have right now. Well, that's all extraordinarily depressing, but unfortunately true. And I mean, we see this. Look, you have four kids. I have four kids. But even we see that the patterns of their lives have changed. I mean, they spend a lot more time in their rooms, on their phones, on their computers, on TikTok. Maybe China invented TikTok in order to spread the one-child policy to the rest of the world. (laughs) Because that is so distracting from normal life. It really is a, a terrible thing. Anyway, guys, so we mentioned that Nick Eberstadt is joining us, and we've had him on before. You know, he's a colleague of ours at AEI. He holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy here, and he writes a great deal, not just on demographics, but especially demographics in China, although he's written about Russia and the United States as well. He's also an expert on North Korea. He was our honoree last year for our Crystal Lecture, and I commend all of his work to you. You can find it on YouTube or on his page at AEI, but he's the person who knows this stuff the best. Here's our interview. Well, Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, well, thanks for having me back. It's great to have you. The proximate reason for our reaching out to you is because there was this New York Times story a few days ago titled, Long Slide Looms for World Population with Sweeping Ramifications. It said, demographers now predict that by the latter half of the century or possibly earlier, the global population will enter into a sustained decline for the first time. The strain of longer lives and low fertility leading to fewer workers, more retirees, threatens to upend how societies are organized around the notion that surplus of young people will drive economies and help pay for the old. You are the world's best demographer, so tell us what we, I am, whether we should be. You are. <laughs> you certainly are to us. Absolutely. So as the world's greatest demographer, tell us, should we be panicking? This is a kind of uh, inversion of the panic of the 1970s about the population explosion. And back then, there was, I think, a lot of unfounded anxiety about the supposedly necessarily bad consequences of growing populations. And I think now we've kind of seen the pendulum swing, and now we've got a lot of angst, including a lot of unnecessary angst, about the possibility of global population decline. So to begin with, nobody knows what's going to happen with world population 50 years from now. 
40, 50 years from now. Because uh, one of the not terribly well-kept secrets of the uh, Demography Guild is that population science has never come up with a reliable, robust, accurate means of forecasting fertility over the long haul. Once you get to the point in the program when you're guessing about how many children the currently unborn are going to have, you're completely in science fiction. <laughs> so we don't know what's going to be happening at the point where some say, not all, but some say global numbers may peak and decline. So, so first can I, of all, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things the Times points out, and again, I, I will never take the side of the New York Times against Nick Eberstadt, but one of the points they make is that, there's a quote, the change may take decades, but once it starts, decline spirals exponentially with fewer births, fewer girls grow up to have children. If they have smaller families than their parents, the drop starts to look like a rock thrown off a cliff. So, I mean, if you're declining, at some point, there are fewer children to have children, even if they choose to have more children. So are, is Absolutely. it hard to dig out of the and hole? No low contesta, you know. Uh, absolutely true. What's difficult or I would argue impossible to predict is whether the number of children that people are having in rich countries in the future is going to stay below replacement, go down even further, or turn around. Now, with demographics, you're watching a very slow motion show. Not much happens from quarter to quarter, or even from year to year. You're looking at things that take place over the course of generations, but over the course of generations, you really can change the world with uh, exponential increase or exponential decrease. At the end of the day, my own impression is that family size is primarily determined not by economic factors or education or any of you know the kind of like the magic wish list that you know the boffins come up with but more simply by the desired number of children that people want because you know we're not heedless animals and if it turns out in the future that people in the rich countries in particular want to have two or slightly more than two kids things will turn around. Now, that's a big if. And instead of talking to an economist, you probably would want to talk to like a Nobel uh, laureate in literature to kind of wrap your head around that one. But you know, so these are for sure long-term trends. And they take a long time to work themselves out. And you know we can only see the beginnings of where some of these things are going. The point I was going to make is that while I have my personal preferences, you know, as a citizen, as a parent, as a you know a member of society, for what what I'd like to see uh, you know things look like in my country, I don't think that there's any kind of scientific way that someone can say one birth level is obviously preferable to another birth level. With death rates, I can always say a lower death rate is better than a higher death rate for all sorts of reasons, but the birth choices are a little more tricky. And with a slowing population growth trend, or even with a declining population growth trend, I think that it's still possible for societies to remain prosperous, to increase their prosperity. Uh, they obviously have to change, 
It's a question of how adaptable, how flexible, how competent people, societies, governments are in the face of change. It's like the flip side of the population explosion. If we're dealing with a situation where health and education are on the upswing, we have a lot more options than if we've got a declining population total with a bad uh, human capital background, if you see what I mean. I do see what you mean. A lot of the work that you've been doing in this area has centered around China. You had just an amazing project a couple of years ago about family and family practices in China. One of the tidbits in this article that we've been quoting from, and as you said, no better way to look stupid than predicting what's going to happen you know, 100 years from now or 80 years from now. But they say their model shows that China, which has a population right now, of about 1.4 billion will, by the end of this century, have a population of about 730 million. Now, even if that's off by a pretty substantial factor, that is uh, what Seinfeld might have called substantial shrinkage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We haven't seen the latest numbers from China's 2020 census because they seem to be a little bit embarrassed about them and the Chinese Communist Party, and they're trying to massage them before outsiders get a look at their new improved numbers. I mean, the premier of, of the People's Republic, you know, he's famous for coming up with the phrase man-made numbers, right? They're good at man-made numbers. And so they haven't shown us the version of man-made numbers they'd like us best to see. But even without them, we know that there's a lot of momentum right now for population peaking and for population decline, and maybe even for population decline for quite a while. And we know that the population is going to age very rapidly unless there's some catastrophe that kills the seniors. That's the only way that serious population aging can be forestalled. But a lot of the problems that China is going to face have to do with, on this podcast, am I allowed to say they're a totalitarian dictatorship? Can you are not only that? allowed, you're encouraged. <laughs> I think. Well, and you could use even worse words because, than that. We're, we got an explicit rating, Nick. Okay. Because of their form of government, mm. uh, they have problems that other countries with similar population shapes or structures would not face because they are for some strange reason, a very low trust society. Oh, so weird. Where people <laughs> must, yes, where people must rely desperately on their families for security or for advance. The fate of family structures matters a whole lot more in China than it would in a normal country. Maybe we can call it that. And for reasons like this, and for other reasons kind of in the same, you know, same sort of family grouping, China's population trends may be harder to square with improving individual welfare and improving prosperity than if you had the same population structure in Sweden or Australia or some country with rule of law, open society, more responsive governance. So the context matters a lot as well. 
So, uh, Nick, just to sort of quickly insert there, it was, it was interesting. Simon Rabinovich from The Economist actually tweeted out this morning that 2020 was expected to be the year that the median age in China exceeded that in the United States for the first time. Yep. But the new yep. census seems to show that China is actually aging even faster. You mentioned yep. that you think that has implications, you know, especially in this communist totalitarian society. Play it forward. What sure. are the implications that you see? Sure. Well, the Chinese government, let's see, not to put too fine a point on it, hasn't been as interested in the well-being and the welfare of its citizens as more accountable polities tend to be. And that means, among other things, that you have this extraordinary gap in living standards, uh, wealth, and well-being between people in the left-behind rural regions and people in the urban areas, in the cities, the export centers, economic and political centers. And the population of the countryside in China is already way grayer than the national average because young folks move out to become effectively illegal aliens in their own country in the big cities because of their creepy uh, hukou population control migration registration, national identity registration program. So there's precious little government attention or support for older people in China. And with the withering away of the family, if you don't live in a big city and you aren't on the inside political circle of having worked at a state enterprise or in an urban municipal sort of enterprise or government, you're not going to have much in the way of a national pension guarantee. It's penurious at best. And with the withering away of the family, you're not going to have the traditional social safety net that China has relied upon over the past, I don't know, 4,000 years, the family. So with the increasingly rapid graying of China, we may be seeing something like a slow motion humanitarian tragedy unfolding, especially in the rural areas. And I guess we'll have to see if there is enough political accountability or responsiveness in the Chinese system today to have any appreciable attention to this. Well, you know, they of course, they caused this to some extent for decades with their one-child policy, which they scrapped a few years ago and turned into a two-child policy. And now the New York Times uh, reports that they've expanded it to a three-child policy, that they're, you know, I guess to uh, paraphrase uh, Deng Xiaoping, to have children is glorious. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but on Chinese social media, on Weibo, which is the, one of their social media platforms, the response yeah. has been pretty cool that people are saying, well, we can't afford to take care of our aging grandparents. And don't these people know we're just having struggling to feed ourselves? How can we feed all these children? Isn't it hard to reverse these trends once you have like statist or uh, totalitarian social engineering like the Chinese have engaged in for so many years? Well, the one child policy really is a monstrosity. I mean, it really is uh, an abomination and a crime. And it's been a shame since 1980 how few China watchers, uh, international affairs, experts, American policymakers have called it out. 
it clearly was using, was intending to use uh, bayonets to force down the birth rate back in the very, very late 70s and the early 80s and since then. And uh, it takes Lenin to its kind of ultimate endpoint. His encapsulation of the uh, concept of totalitarianism was we recognize nothing private. Well, Lenin didn't try to bring bayonets into the bedroom. It, well, it didn't happen until the so-called reformers in China after Mao came into power. And I'm not clear exactly how much, quote, credit should be given to the police state coercive birth policy in forcing down the birth rate in China certainly some. Uh, but by the time the program was ended, as you noted, uh, back in 2015, there was a little blip in reported total births. And after that, for the last five years, it slumped further and further and further down. And I'm not sure that the numbers are correct yet. But if you believe the numbers that we've heard, the total slump has been like over 30% in just five years. I mean, that's like what happens in a catastrophic war or in a famine. I mean, that's not what happens during normal peacetime. So we should remember, however, that in changing the norm, the Chinese Communist Party still demands the right to set family size in China. I mean, all that they have done is raised the quota that they say the state will permit parents to have. The government still very strictly says uh, the number of births in the country is a matter of state. So with their apparent panic at the results of the 2020 census, now they're saying, okay, we'll make it a three-child norm. As many as three kids will be permitted. I mean, there's probably a huge big footnote for the Uyghurs and for other non-Han ethnicities in there. We'll see the fine print soon enough, I guess. What I'm wondering about is what happens next. This is just changing the quota. I think what happens after that is we start seeing incentives and bribes to try to get parents to have more children by dangling goodies in front of them. I don't expect that's going to work terribly well. I may be wrong. Uh, they did that in France, the, right? And did, did it work in France? Yeah, they, they, to the extent that, you know, they say that demographers are like actuaries except without the personality. <laughs> to the Demographers are disposed to like have uh, little hissy arguments. There's a little hissy argument among demographers, and some say that pronatal bribes work, and some say they don't. I tend to be more skeptical of them. There's something called the Swedish roller coaster by uh, demographers, which is you know watching Sweden put in a bribe or whatever you call it, a pronatal incentive policy. Some people who are on the fence about having a second or third kid take the money and run. So the birth rate goes up for a year or so and then slumps down to below where it was before. I mean, as you can tell, I'm a little skeptical about the efficacy of the bribes. It have to be really big bribes to change people, I think, their behavior. But the Chinese government, of course, likes to coerce people. So it's easy enough to understand how you coerce people, you know, to have fewer kids, you know, you forcible abortions and uh, killing newborn babies and all of that sort of stuff, uh, which all 
happened on a huge scale in China over the past uh, generation plus. But how do you force people to have more kids than they want? We may see this soon enough because China has got this market totalitarian experiment they're rolling out with the social credit rating system, you know, where you get kind of like rewarded or penalized through tiny little nudges, you know, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Wong, you're not going to be able to rent a car, you have no children, you know, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Miss Lee, you're not going to be able to fly in an air, you know, this flight because you're not married, uh, you know, there are all sorts of new totalitarian pressures that the Chinese government may inflict on its population to try to force the birth rate up. And we've never seen anything like that before, so I don't think we know exactly how it may unfold, but we'll see, I think. Well, uh, eventually we will, that's for sure. It's funny, just as you were talking about how a totalitarian government figures out how to force people to have more children, it reminded me of that, I'm aging myself now, but it reminded me of that Woody Allen movie, Sleeper. So everybody go go, go look that up and see what their policies were. I'm not yep. going to explain. So um, we've been talking about bad news and depressing news and horrible governments and awful things. You had a piece in Foreign Affairs that actually was much more cheerful. And the headline of it was, America hasn't lost its demographic advantage. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I didn't write the headline. I just wrote the article. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But that that was the thrust of the piece was, while the news is sort of bad everywhere, it's less bad in America. Well, you may recall from back in the day, the great demographic expert, oh, Waylon Jennings, had a song that uh, went something like, if you think I look bad, you should see the other guy. <laughs> and, that, and that's kind of where we are, I would say, right now with U.S. demographics in comparison to other countries in the real existing world that are our competitors in various ways in the international arena. We had a remarkable situation for a generation, which a generation before the end of the Cold War and lasting beyond the end of the Cold War, where uh, even though we were a rich country, we had birth levels that were about at the replacement rate, where you could sustain a population over time uh, without requirement of immigration because we were so close to the replacement level. And that was unlike virtually any other affluent country in the world, and unlike a lot of the lower-income countries. That's changed since the crash of 2008, since the Great Recession. U.S. birth patterns have significantly shifted, and they've been sliding down. 2020 is a bad year to use because it's like a once-in-a-century shock. You know, it's a worldwide health crisis. Thank you, China. And... um, You would think, Nick, that, I mean, all these young people were locked in their homes without jobs, without anything. But I think I think the difference isn't the part of the difference. And and Nick will obviously be able to answer this better, that everybody now just wants to be on their phone instead of having sex. Yeah. 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 So they spent that time scrolling instead of going. Alexa is sitting here looking really bemused (laughs) as we talk about this. We are using our explicit rating to the full max on this one. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So for more than a decade, let's say up until 2019, you know, before the crisis, before the COVID crisis, childbearing patterns were sliding downward and other things were changing as well. I mean, 
my own interpretation, which is only an interpretation, and others will disagree with me, you know, we disagree all day long, but for what it is worth, my interpretation is that part of what made American childbearing and the rich world exceptional, which it was, was the American outlook, American values. We're a nation with much more religiosity than most of the rich countries. We are much more optimistic outlook on terms of our population, a more patriotic outlook on part of our population. You can see this in polling data. For the rising prospective you know, group of parents, for the millennials, they look very different when you ask them about religion, optimism about the future, uh, patriotism, from their immediate predecessors, from people who are having kids a generation before. And so maybe in that way, it's not so surprising that you see a more European profile of childbearing in the U.S. What hasn't changed, apparently, is immigration inflows. Now, the inflows of immigration look like they stayed about the same annual level in the 2010s as they did in the 2000s, which may be a little bit of a surprise given, you know, all of the rhetoric and, you know, controversy about immigration over recent years. But what this means over the longer term, of course, is that the U.S. is on a trajectory towards lower population growth than we would have thought earlier and towards a slightly, slightly more graying than we would have thought earlier. But as compared to what? I mean, the EU 27 are net mortality zone. They've got more deaths than births. Japan has more deaths than births. Russia has more deaths than births. China very soon is going to have more deaths than births. So even if our era of demographic exceptionalism is over for now, our profile still looks different from all of those regions, all of those big populations. But I guess I'm, I don't take a lot of comfort in the idea that in a depopulating world, we're the tallest midget, yeah, especially what it comes down well, to. You know, that, that those are dying societies when your death rates are exceeding your birth rates and, you know, you're not producing workers, you're not producing taxpayers. Just because we're dying slower doesn't mean that we're I'm healthy. Not, I'm not going to argue with you about that. I mean, to me, myself, the most concerning aspect of low fertility or lower than ever before fertility in the United States is the implicit vote of no confidence that parents seem to be lodging about the American future. And I think that's not trivial. That's something that we should pay attention to and we should wonder about it. And I think we should worry about it. That to me is much more something that we should be alert to than the absolute birth levels that we're talking about. Why is it that young Americans feel less confident, less optimistic in the future? And then the other factor is, is they're having fewer children, but they're also embracing socialism, right? So if you graph the projected increase in government spending and, and entitlements and the projected growth in population, they're not producing the taxpayers or the workers to pay for all the new government programs that they want to take care of their economic insecurity, which is convincing them not to have children. So it's a sort of, isn't it like a death spiral? Well, I can make the argument, and others might contest it, I can make the argument that there's absolutely no contradiction between having less confidence in the future and militating for more 
government support in your life and government involvement in the economy and political determination of economic outcomes. It, it seems to me those are all, you know, the same piece of cloth, if you see what I mean. And for sure, if you look at the longer term projections for solvency in old age support programs, you can see just how the modeling of the impending bankruptcy of Social Security and our healthcare guarantees for older people look like. And by the way, the unfunded debt or deficit of the pension program is a, a tenth, it's a tiny fraction of the debt for our Medicare programs and guarantees. We talk about Social Security all the time, but we're looking at something that's an order of magnitude, littler and easier to solve. But yes, it's, uh, it's nothing at all that we should be complacent about. So my exit question here for you, yes, being the tallest midget is not a great thing, as Mark said. Better than being the smallest. That's also true. I think that's Japan, although I was shocked to see India among these statistics as well. But one thing that I saw is that while the total fertility rate has really, really gone down to the lowest level since the government started, that one of the more recent times when we had this very serious dip was in the administration of Jimmy Carter, where everybody was mm -hmm. pessimistic about everything, but that there was a recovery, not yeah. only with the economic recovery, but also with the optimistic sort of election of Ronald Reagan. So can't we hope for some sort of recovery once we get rid of these aged schmucks who have been running the country since... Uh... Absolutely. This is what I was saying earlier, that demographers are clueless about uh, forecasting fertility changes in the future. I mean, they missed the baby boom. They missed this baby bust. They're good at drawing straight lines. You know, they're good at taking, saying that tomorrow will be like today, except 2% different. You know, and in the late 1970s, after the U.S. had lost the war in Vietnam, Jimmy Carter was the one who talked about a national malaise. I mean, I think he contributed to it, but there certainly was a national malaise then. But it changed almost on a dime, you know, in at the end of 1980. And there's absolutely no reason that couldn't happen again. And by the way, we won't know about any uptick in birth trends that may occur until well after it has begun, until we start looking at it in the rearview mirror, because we just don't predict these things terribly well. Exit question for me, Nick. We started out by talking about how we, there was a concern about the population boom in the 1970s, and now we've got the depopulation bust, I guess. Are overpopulation and depopulation equivalent problems? I mean, if you go back, the wisdom of the Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, if you go mm. back to the book of Genesis, God said, uh, go forth yeah. and multiply. He didn't say go forth and replace yourself. <laughs> this, right. this has been right. for millennia. We were supposed to go forth and populate the earth, and more people were better. And yeah. the left seems to see people as burdens to be taken care of, whereas those on the right seem to be more people as a blessing and more children as a blessing. Are we yeah. losing that understanding of population, and is that what's partly driving this? Well, part of what I think what was badly off in the 70s and the, you know, the Ehrlich population bomb sort of view of the problem, the growth in human population was being driven by an explosion of health. The reason that our numbers were increasing was because the death rate was plummeting, life expectancy was soaring, 
you know, if you're going to have a population problem, I'll, I'll take the health explosion as a population problem. That's one I can work with because there's a lot of good stuff that you can do with that. We've got something very different that's coming across the world right now, which is a change which is being driven by radical transformation in childbearing patterns. And that's more, I think that's more ambiguous. It's fascinating, you know, when you go back to the book of Genesis, why did the creator command human beings? I mean, that was a command. Uh, he, he didn't say, oh, you are just naturally fruitful. You just naturally multiply. Why did he have to tell people to be fruitful and multiply? I mean, if you read that, it's kind of like, it's not a total confidence that this game is going to come off, you know? And for an awful long time, the human population really did cling on the edge of a knife to survival. For the future, even if we do not have enough human numbers to maintain total world population, as I said, I think we can do perfectly well, and I think we can have prosperity and improving prosperity over a long period of time, as long as we have improving health and education and knowledge and flexible open societies. But we can't take any of that for granted. It gets back to why do you need that command? You do need it, actually. And, uh, and the other thing I think we can conclude that you need is mourning in America. Because, well, it's true. Nick, you, as usual, were awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and oh, it's a sort of pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thanks. All right, Danny, you mentioned Woody Allen's sleeper. Do we need to bring out the orgasmatron? Oh, my God. So, you know, I don't know. I, I actually don't know the demographics of our audience, but I suspect there are probably people like us who do remember that. But, right, the premise was that a man named Albert Shanker who was the head of the National Education Association and widely disliked, had gotten a hold of the bomb, and they needed to repopulate the world. And they brought out, that's right, they had this this device. Oh, my God. Anyway, it's it's if you can bring yourself to watch Woody Allen, despite all the awful things that have been written and said about him and the creepy things he's actually done as well, uh, then sleepers, sleepers should be your guide <laughs> to what the future might look like with all these problems. We need families. We need stable families. We need big. I will tell you, my father-in-law passed away on Friday. Oh, I'm um, sorry. And it was a long. It was long in coming. Went out to dinner on Monday night with my mother-in-law and was able to go out to a restaurant and died a few days later. So he was active until the end. But what was remarkable to me, we spent pretty much every night this week with my mother-in-law, and she had three children. And between all of us, she has nine grandchildren plus step grandchildren as well. And this whole extended family surrounded her. I really weep for the images that are going to come decades from now when people are making ill-advised decisions not to have children, not to have lots of children, and they're not going to have that comfort when the time comes with them. No, like listen, I agree, I agree with you. Not to proselytize on this question, but I will say, you know, our oldest is getting married in two weeks, and our youngest is going to be going off to college in one year. And we look at that with trepidation, first of all, because we have to be alone together, but second of all, well, and the dogs, but second of all, because this has defined our lives for almost 30 years, and that is such a joy in life. What are the things that are going to sustain people? You do not get sustained joy out of TikTok. You do not get sustained joy even out of out of a great career, right? The Arthur Brooks, our former boss, talks about this all the time. You know, it's faith 
which of course is also declining in America. It's work, which is also declining in America. And it's family. And if you don't have kids, you don't have that. This is a problem that is foreseeable, but yet not foreseen. A lot of people look at children not as the purpose of marriage, not as the center of a family, but as like a child is like an accessory, right? So I've got my career, I've got our fabulous vacations, and well, we can manage one child and keep all that going, right? Because they don't want to give anything up. They don't want to sacrifice anything because it just seems so hard. You're giving up a phrase of your life. You have four kids. I have four kids. What we have found, I don't want to speak for you, but what I have found is that the sacrifice of self for having loving people in your lives brings so much more joy than having one more nice beach vacation or one more, you know, more, Listen. more, more nicer apartment or nicer furniture. You know, I, when I was in my 20s, I wanted all this stuff. And now I don't care about stuff. I care about my family. I care about spending time with my kids. That's okay, I like stuff too. Let, let's. I let's well, I, let, I, my shoes are very important to me. But no, listen. I just. Yeah. I, I. You know, guys. I told Mark when when we came into the studio this, that Stephen, my husband, just flew down on Monday morning. Our daughter is moving out of her apartment, finished college, and in tears on Sunday night. I just can't manage. Of course, you know, we we all have been through this. Yep. <laughs> who have kids and you know, flew down to Nashville and then drove back with her. Arrived at four thirty in the morning. You know, he could have hung around in the house with me. We watched uh, Guardians of the Galaxy maybe last night, and that would have been great, I guess. But he did this for Soph, and what, what great, a great thing to do. And done the drive from Nashville to Washington, it's about 10 or 11 hours, and those are 10 or 11 hours that are irreplaceable. That's exactly right. And uh, for all of you out there, just FYI, what they did for at least four hours was listen to our podcast. So that warmed my heart. So do the same. Go back. Share the podcast with people. Rate us. Subscribe. And, and, then, and go and give your families a, a big hug and a kiss because uh, they are the best things in the world. Thanks for listening. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 